Hi everybody, good to see you. Um, We are in the book of Matthew, so if you have your Bible, maybe you turn with me to that first book of the New Testament, the book of Matthew and chapter 4. We are finishing the intro section to uh, the Gospel of Matthew, which we're going to stay in for a while. But these first four sermons uh, we've done have have set out the beginning of Jesus' public career. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 25 today, as we kind of bring the climactic point to Jesus launching out publicly, Jesus going public with, with his career, with his mission, with his teaching, and with his powerful, uh, famous public ministry. So we'll be looking at that in just a moment. Before we do that, I wanted to just say how massively enthusiastic. I could not be uh, more excited about the launch of our fifth site, which we are starting this year. And so the plan is that at Easter sort of time, uh, we will be going into launch with the Oasis uh, site, Emmanuel at Oasis in Hangleton in North Hove. And it's been quite a journey. Uh, It's been a journey for us at Emmanuel. Uh, We've been inspired and motivated about going for five sites in the city since about seven, eight, nine years ago seven or eight years ago at least, um, and it's been quite an exciting journey, uh, going from two, then, then three, and then four, and now finally starting at our fifth site. Um, it's, it's been a journey for the community that already exists at uh, uh, Oasis, that this wonderful uh, fellowship of believers who've been gathered together, loving Jesus, uh, preaching the gospel, um, trying to serve that community in North Hove for a long time. They have joined heart with us over this last uh, year or two and the prospect of connecting with them and launching them again, relaunching them as a new site in Emmanuel is, is so, so exciting. And I just want to encourage you to get very involved in your praying, get involved in getting to know people from Oasis if you do, if you can, if you have the opportunity to. Uh, let's do this as a whole church. And of course, let's get involved in this gift day. Because we are involved in giving to make it happen, this is not just a, a North Hove thing. This is not just a one-site thing. This is an Emmanuel thing. This is a whole city from Shoreham to Marina thing. Uh, we get the privilege of taking part in it. Pray, give, enjoy, uh, take part. Uh, It's going to be fantastic. So please, I want to ask you, with that gift day coming up in March, let's start praying now. Let's start seeking God and asking him for a fantastic, stupendous amount of money to be raised so that we can really launch something magnificent there in that part of the city. Okay, let's get into Matthew and chapter 4, and uh, we'll just have this passage read to us now. This is a reading taken from Matthew 4, verses 12 to 25. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. 
And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Some of you may have seen the recent TV production of Les Miserables. Uh, you may have come across the story uh, through the famous West End musical that's been kind of dominating theatres for, for decades. You may have even read the book. It is a truly great story. It's inspiring. It's moving. It's got everything going. It's kind of, uh, it's got the, 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 the armies and the revolutionaries. It's got the romance. It's got the, the prisons and the, it's, it's got everything. I think it's, it's got, it's got, what's it got? It's, it's got Frenchness. So, so it's, it's definitely a very exciting story. It hinges on, on a moment in, in French history that really took place in about 1830 when a bunch of, of students and, uh, and demonstrators took to the barricades once again in France to try to overthrow the existing regime. Uh, and there's a point in the story where the announcement is made amongst the kind of revolutionary crowd, General Lamarck is dead. General Lamarck is dead. Uh, if you know anything about French history from that time, it, it, it's an announcement that, that kind of resonates. But for most of us who don't know much about French history in 1830, it's, it's kind of going to just bounce off us. Why would we care about this announcement, General Lamarck is dead? There's no context for it. Why do we care? Where it's spoken in this scene, in the, in the program or in, the, in the, the musical or in the book, it's like a powder keg going off. It's like General Lamarck is dead is, is the moment that this community is waiting for. It's an inspirational moment because they understand the significance of it. In the story, uh, General is the one person with any authority, any status, who speaks up for the poor. And so the, the, the people begin to see this as a moment, the funeral that's going to come. General Mark's funeral is a moment for demonstration, a moment to stick it to the regime. And so they, they see it as a significant announcement. General, the General Lamarck is dead. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is because we don't always understand the explosive power of a statement if we don't understand the context into which it's spoken. Jesus, when he comes into the communities of Galilee, announcing, as it says in verse 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's saying something that to 21st century Britonians might sound tame, innocuous, and without much uh, potency. When he says it, in the towns of Galilee in the first century, it is like throwing a match into a dynamite factory. It's, it's significant. They know that he means business. When he starts to announce, 
the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They, they, they understand, oh, this is a firebrand we've got here. This is, a, this is a, a revolutionary we've got here. This is someone who's taking on the, the message of John the Baptist. John's been taken away to, to prison, but here is another John. Here is another passionate preacher who wants to see a radical shift. He wants to see change. He wants to see transformation. He's even demanding that we, all of us, respond to the moment because his announcement is not just the kingdom of heaven is at hand. His announcement is repent, which literally means change your mind. He's making a demand on the people to whom he communicates this news. The kingdom is at hand, therefore each of us has a decision to make. Just like in Les Miserables, the general is dead, therefore each of us has to decide which side are we on. Are we on the side of, of the regime with all of its greed and all of its, uh, its, uh, its unfair use of power? Or are we on the side of the poor, the people, the downtrodden, the masses? And, and Jesus is kind of playing that role of the announcer of a, of a shift in this story. Now, the, the shift could be taken as bad news or good news, or both. The, the, the statement sounds a little bit foreboding. You could say in Matthew's Gospel, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Although that's a sort of a, a mixed message because repent sounds negative. Kingdom of heaven, that sounds good. By the way, Matthew, when he talks about the kingdom of heaven, it's synonymous with the kingdom of God. It, it means the same thing. It's just the, the phrase that Matthew chooses to use in his Gospel most of the time. But that's got to be a positive thing, hasn't it? Well, yes and no, I suppose. The kingdom of God is at hand, or the kingdom of God is here, is among you. Those are the kind of translations that we give to this phrase. Could sound also a little bit frightening, <laughs> a little bit of a threat, a little bit of a warning at least. Imagine a, a big uh, stately home or even a royal palace where the king has been absent for a long time. The king, the king has, has been away on a journey, been away on royal progress, perhaps, touring the, the land. Um, and while he's been absent, the staff have, have had their fun. While the cat's away, the mice will play. And, and really, they've treated the royal palace like it's their own. They've got up to, to all kinds of misdemeanors. They've, they've, they've done outrageous, debauched things. You know, they've... they've eating pudding on the snooker table. I don't know, they, they, they've, they've, they've just done terrible things, things that you shouldn't do. And, uh, and, and of course, this would mean that the announcement, the king is at hand, the king is coming, would immediately start a response of things being straightened out, things being tidied up, things being cleaned, uh, people putting clothes back on, all the kinds of stuff that... that, that that's not been happening. And so there's just a possible chance that as he just kind of comes up the driveway, it, we might be ready. We might have the place straightened out. And, and you could say that Jesus' announcement is rather like that. The Lord, the King, Israel's God, has seemed absent. And he's, he's returning. He's coming back to his rightful place. He's coming back to his position of authority, position. He's coming to take up residence amongst you. And uh, that, that, that certainly demands some kind of response, causes us to you know, straighten our ties, etc. But it's, it's surely going to be good news as well. And don't forget we said last week, and we've got to keep reminding ourselves, Matthew's presenting us with 
his gospel, the gospel according to Matthew. That's the title of the book, which means good news. <laughs> the good news according to Matthew. Jesus came bringing good news. And in fact, in Mark's, Mark's presentation of this very moment, the beginning of Jesus' career, you can read about it in Mark chapter 1, verse 14. He says uh, that Jesus went into the towns of Galilee preaching, repent, yes, and believe the good news. The good news of the kingdom. So, overall from the Bible, we get the impression that this kingdom announcement, however much it might cause us to want to fix things and put things back on mantelpieces and kind of get the place ready, it's also an announcement of genuinely good news. It's a positive, joyful announcement. It's what, what we might sometimes call glad tidings. It's, it's a, a happy announcement to make. The, the kind of uh, stories or phrases that the people of Jesus' day would have grown up hearing and reciting in their synagogues and phrases that they got from the prophets hundreds of years before who predicted the time when Yahweh, the God of Israel, would show up and rule amongst his people. Phrases like the one from Isaiah 52, verse 7, where, where, where Isaiah the prophet says, How beautiful... On the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. For, for they proclaim the peace that comes from God. And they announce, your God reigns. Your God reigns. This is the announcement. God is coming to reign. And, and Isaiah says, how beautiful. <laughs> how wonderful to get this good news. Even your feet are beautiful. Uh, even your feet are attractive. That's, that's because you, what the news you're bringing is so welcome. The news you have for us is what we've, we've longed to hear. You imagine what good news might be for you at this point in your life. I don't know what you've been longing to hear. Perhaps something about the economy, something about foreign affairs, something about your family, something about the government, something about somebody liking you who you've liked for a while or something about your your personal finances or something about your job and there's perhaps been something you've yearned for perhaps something you've prayed for for weeks or months you've prayed and prayed and you've longed for the moment when there's there's good news there's a turnaround there's an announcement well on a on a sort of a national scale on a on a ethnic scale for hundreds of years these people had had yearned for a breakthrough of this good news that the Lord is coming back to reign. The Lord is going to come and reign. Not what we've had instead. In their case, what they'd been used to was the reign of false powers, bullying, harsh, often cruel, uh, victorious superpowers in their part of the world. Not, it's not just in our generation that, that the Middle East has been a scene of conflict and tribal battles, but going back millennia, it's been a place where land has been contested and, and fought for bitterly and feuds and, and generational conflicts have, have worked themselves out into, a, into hideous levels of violence for, for, for so long. And these people had their longing, their dream that the Lord would show up and redeem and restore and vindicate his people and, and deal with their enemies. 
for hundreds of years. They don't, they'd only known enmity. They'd only known the constant threat and trouble of brutalizing armies, the Assyrians and then the Babylonians and then the, the Greeks of various kinds and then the Romans now, perhaps the worst of all, the Romans now in control. And, and this prophet comes to us saying, the kingdom is at hand. And so for many, this would have seemed a great joy. But of course, we, if we read our Bible sensitively, know that there's an even deeper level of understanding. If you sort of peel the onion further, we, you, you'll see that this announcement of the restoring of the kingdom of God, the kingdom being at hand, speaks of something that, that, that actually goes even deeper than the, the release from foreign injustice that they longed for. There's also the recovery of freedom and authority that they would have yearned for on more perhaps of a personal level. Because really the enemy that they needed to overcome is, is really the same enemy that you and I need to have overcome in our lives. They perhaps would have pictured Rome as their terrible enemy, but in fact their, their real enemy is the same as yours and mine, the enemy the enemy of our own pride, selfishness, greed, what the Bible calls our sin. The curse of our enmity with God. The curse of our war with God. The curse of our messed up, broken relationship with God. This is the... This is the thing that we need freedom from. This is why we need God to show up and restore us. We need his kingdom to be set up. We need to be recovered. God first established human beings on the planet in, in the paradisal garden of Eden to rule, to reign, to be a king and a queen, to have destiny, to have authority but the story has been since then that we abdicated that authority. That we in fact gave it away to a serpent, to a, to, a, to a liar, to a deceiver. And since then the story has been that there has been this tyrannical, brutal, false ruler, this false king who seems to have control of our lives, control of human history. It's not just one tribe or one army or one superpower. It's not just Assyria or Babylon or, or Rome or, or whatever, the, the, the communism or, or fascism or, or the British Empire or whatever. It's not, it's not one particular brutalizing or, or apparently kind of forceful regime that seems to control the world. It goes further. It goes deeper. And so Jesus isn't just saying, I'll get rid of your political enemies for you. He's saying, no, God wants to restore you fully. Now, they didn't necessarily understand the depth to which God was prepared and willing to go, wanting to go, but this was certainly the key of Jesus' announcement. He's come to bring true restoration. And what I want to do in, in this, the, the last chunk of our, our message is look at how he's doing that in this part of our story. Because this is, 
a very helpful thing Matthew does here. He really sets out some key ways in which Jesus is advancing the arrival of the king. Jesus isn't just saying, oh, it's going to happen. He's saying, I'm bringing this about. I'm bringing the reign of the king. That's my business here. And he does it really in three key ways in this passage. First of all, he, he does it, he starts with the, the gathering of the community of the king. He starts the community of the king. You see that in, uh, in verse 18 and uh, uh, 19 and verse 21. Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter. Jesus gave him the name Peter. He starts off as, as just being called Simon. And his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Jesus here, it looks pretty innocent. It looks, it looks pretty sort of you know, domesticated and, 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 and routine. He's just showing up on, on the, the seaside and, and making friends with some fishermen. But this is what's so re- remarkable about it. What looks so mundane is actually the very beginning of the community that went on to change the world. This is, this is what we're reading about here. We're reading about nothing other than the, the, the very kind of DNA of God's restoring, redeeming, global community. It's, it's a global, world-transforming movement that starts as this wandering prophet walks up to some fishermen and says, come with me. Come with me. It starts so apparently innocuous, but it's, it's, going, it's not going to end until the world has been changed. The ripples that go out from this tiny pebble going into the sea or into the pond will, 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 will cover the, the whole expanse of the water, if you like. That's, that's what we're reading about here. It's so small, but it's so huge. It's, it's the church of Jesus Christ. It's ordinary people basing, building their lives around Jesus. It's ordinary people, rather like you and me, coming into contact with Jesus and having our lives changed by him. And that's it. That's it. That there's power enough in just that happening for the world to never be the same again. Never to be the same again. He gathers actually 12 of them. These are, these are the first four. There's like a kind of little nucleus here. James, John, uh, Peter and Andrew. And, and they, they form the beginning of 12. 12 is Jesus' sort of apostles, Jesus' disciples. The number 12 is, in fact, very significant. And we'll, we'll find that it comes up later in Matthew's Gospel. The reason he chooses 12 most, most obviously is because he is showing that he's continuing God's plan for Israel. That God, God started his redemptive glorious royal community right back in the book of Genesis with Jacob and his 12 sons. 
the 12 sons who came to be 12 tribes of Israel. And, and Jesus is saying, I am the new Jacob, if you like. I am the new Israel. I am starting with another 12. We are beginning Israel. We are restoring, renewing. We are relaunching Israel. There is a new Israel that's to be set across the nations of the world. God wants to bless all the nations of the world, just as he promised Jacob's granddad, Abraham. It's going to happen. I'm going to bless all the families of all the nations. I'm going to do it through a global community. It starts here with just these simple fishermen. So the plan is on, but it starts with people who, in reality, they're, they're not necessarily the types that we would have expected. They're apparently unimpressive people. They're just fishermen. They're not rabbis. They're not even theological students. They're not down in Jerusalem. They're, they're up in Galilee. They're up in the north. They're up in, a, in a, a probably a fairly despised community, at least despised by the, the, the Judeans down in the south. This, this would seem inconsequential, and very often the church can seem inconsequential. You and I can, can be very aware of our ordinariness, our weakness, our lack of qualifications, our lack of status, our, our lack of significance in the world. We can be rather ashamed of what we haven't got. But these guys don't have much either. They really don't. They're not high on status. They're not necessarily high on learning. They probably didn't have a lot of theology at this point. What did they have? They had the willingness and the desire to follow Jesus. In the end, what they, what they had wasn't the point. It's what they knew they didn't have. And it's the same with you and me. What we have to bring to God is not really the main thing. You and I have nothing ultimately to bring to God but our need, our hunger, hopefully, our longing for him. If you want Jesus and his kingdom, you have everything you need. <laughs> all you need is the desire for the king. That's all you need. All you need is your need. All you need is, is to say, I want Jesus more than I want other things. If that's true of you, my friend, God can do anything with you. If your heart desire is for him if in your heart you say I, I want you more than I want anything else you are surely right there smack in the center of his plan you are definitely part of his community if in your heart you say I want Jesus so much that I'll build my life around him that's what God wants to see in us desire for him he can add the other stuff he can add the the theology and the power and the, the, the significance that we need. We, if there's stuff to be done through us, God can add that in any time he wants, and he will. But he starts with people who are humble, ready, teachable, serving him, obedient to him, following him. So he starts this community of the king. But then secondly, he teaches the way of the king. He's going to spend time teaching the way of the king. This is actually what Matthew's lining up. When he says in verse 17, from that time, Jesus began. He's, he's using a phrase that he uses two or three other times in this book of, of, of the gospel according to Matthew. From that time. He uses them as kind of big uh, breakers in the story. They're, they're kind of headings for, for his book. He's saying, this is the chunk of time I want you to see here. I want you to see that from this time, actually, this goes right up until 
you could say the end of chapter 16. He's describing how Jesus teaches and preaches his message in the first chunk of his career. He's starting by saying, I want to clarify this message of the kingdom. That's what these whole chapters are about. From here right up to chapter 16, he's clarifying his message. He's clarifying what the kingdom is. That's what he's doing. But, but you need to see what the teaching of the way of the kingdom is like. It's characterized by this theme of repentance there in verse 17. Verse 23, uh, just at the beginning there, he went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And it's, it's going to feature this language of repent, repent, change your mind. The king is at hand, change. change. Something must change. There's a demand. The king's here. The, the kingdom has come. Everything is going to change. You must be ready to change. You must be ready for change. Maybe we think, well, what, what does that look like? What does repentance actually mean? And if we ask that question, we've actually got an answer for it, at least hinted right here in these four brothers that he first meets, these two sets of brothers. In verse 20, it says about Simon and Andrew, it says, immediately they left their nets and followed him. They left their nets. They were fishermen. They, they, that was it. They were no longer fishermen. Their nets are gone. And then you get the same idea, verse 22, with, with uh, James and John. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed Jesus. So Jesus just comes into their life and beckons them, follow me. And that somehow is enough for these kind of probably fairly aggressive, confident, business savvy fishermen who've seen a lot of life and seen a lot of people, seen a lot of preachers probably, a lot of prophets, a lot of wandering sages, and ignored them. Well, that's not me. I'm a fisherman. I've got boats and nets to look after. I've got a father's business to run. I'm not just chasing some dreamer across the hills of Galilee. Thank you very much. But when they saw Jesus, it says immediately they followed him. It was just they knew decision time. Everything else comes second. My, my nets come second. The thing I'm doing right now. What's the thing you're doing right now? What are your nets? The things you're busy, busy, busy with. That are going to be on your mind as you leave the meeting today. The things that concern you. The things that are on your list. Perhaps at the top of your list. They said right, even those things, they come second to Jesus. He's now top of the list. They left their boats. They left their... their if you like, their kind of habitat. They probably spent half their lives in boats. They left the familiar. They left the territory of their lives, the things that they've grown to rely upon. What's the stuff you've grown to rely upon? What are the, the places, the, the relationships, the, the habits, the behaviors, the routines, the timetables, the schedules that you've grown to rely upon as though they are the thing that identifies you? They're the most important thing in your life. My friend, you've got to, be prepared every day of your life to leave them behind. Following Jesus means being prepared, ready for the time when he says, I'm calling rank. I'm number one. And thirdly, they left their father. And that's, that's the most 
poignant thing of all for anybody to leave family, to leave deep ties, deep relationship, deep union, to say, even this comes second. In their culture, this would have been no small thing as well. There would have been even a sense of perhaps responsibility towards a father that would run very deep. Perhaps even there's a danger of, of being misunderstood. When you, you, you follow Jesus, people will misunderstand you. When you put Jesus first, people will misinterpret it. People, people will see it as even being ungrateful. And you know you're not ungrateful. People will see it as an attack on their honor. When you know it's not an attack on their honor, but you know that you, you want to follow Jesus, and so you, you've, got to, you've got to see him as first. And I guess if we're looking for a, a way to understand repentance, it's, it's, it's being prepared to undo our lives, unravel our lives for the sake of having Jesus first. Sometimes people say, can you be this and still be a Christian? Can I do this and still be a Christian? I get asked that question sometimes. Can I have this and still be a Christian? Can I have this and still be a Christian? And I, I'm listening because I'm not always sure where the question's coming from. It's an interesting question. It might be a very innocent question, but sometimes you can detect what's going on is this person's heart is, is not in being a Christian at all. Their heart is not in following Jesus and I feel like saying, well, in the end, the thing you can't have is an unrepentant Christian. There's no such thing as an unrepentant Christian. Whatever else you are, whatever, else, whatever other feature of your life you want to hang on to and still follow Jesus, the thing you can't hang on to is an unrepentant heart, which is unwilling to change, unwilling to turn around, unwilling to relinquish a chunk of your life. If there's a chunk of life, you can't have that. You can't touch that. Sometimes think of it like somebody who's, who's, who's trying to force Jesus into their life that's already quite sort of developed. They've already got their, their, their plans set out quite firmly. Some people would, when, they, when they've got to a point in doing a crossword puzzle, you ever done a crossword puzzle where you've seemed to have got about 80% done? And you, you're pretty convinced. In fact, you might even have 90, 95% done. You might have one last word and you just can't make it fit. And you can't, you cannot make it fit. However, it doesn't work. I can't think of a... And the only one word that, that does fit is one that doesn't fit with all my other answers. What does that mean? Well, surely it means that it's time to look again at all your other answers. Maybe your other answers were wrong. Maybe you've built your whole crossword on wrong answers. Maybe you're building your whole life on assumptions that you should question. On non-negotiables, deal breakers that in fact are not deal breakers. They are negotiable. They're things that you should be prepared to, to at least hold lightly. Because Jesus didn't come to fit in. Think of it more like another, another illustration, not a, not a crossword puzzle, but a jigsaw puzzle. I guess many of us come to Jesus with our jigsaw nearly done. And there are about three or four pieces missing. We get to the end of our jigsaw and we say, Jesus, can, I, can you fit in these three or four pieces, please? Could you give, give me the pieces, that, the gaps? I've got a few gaps. Could you help me? I've heard that you're good. I've heard that Jesus is kind. I've heard that Jesus helps people in their lives. I want my best life. And so I want Jesus to give me the missing pieces for my best life. And 
Jesus is going to come to you and say, no, I've got a better jigsaw. I'm not going to allow you to keep constructing that false one. I want, I want to give you a whole different one. Jesus comes to these fishermen and says, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. <laughs> you th- you, yeah, you're quite good at catching fish. I want you to catch men. I want you to spend the rest of your life doing something you wouldn't have dreamed of. And, and sure enough, these people, their lives are never the same again. These people, Peter, James, John, Andrew, for, for very different reasons, all these four men, they're famous. They're global. I mean, they've got countries with their names as patron saints. They're, they're, they are, they, their lives just transformed. They kind of had a plan. I'm going to be a fisherman. I'm going to run my dad's business. I'm going to keep it going. I'm going to perhaps have some kids and they can run it. I'm going to, I've got the thing mapped out. I've got the plan. I know the next 10, 20, 30 years. I remember thinking that myself when I was a teenager. I had a rough idea of the plan. And that was one of the reasons I didn't like Jesus for a while. Because he conflicted with my scheme. He didn't fit. His kingdom was not my kingdom. I had my kingdom. I didn't really want this king that was coming into my life. And he turned my life upside down. I was about 16 years old. And and finally, stuff that I'd been kind of semi-following Jesus with for a long time, trying to do two jigsaws, if you like, two puzzles, trying to do Jesus as part of life, I realized I couldn't do it anymore. I just couldn't. And it didn't make me happy. No one is ever happy being an unrepentant Christian. They're the most miserable people of all because you can't enjoy sin or Jesus. You, You need to yield and do what these men did immediately. <laughs> they followed him and their lives were never the same again. It could be huge. It could mean letting go of some big pieces. It could mean redoing the puzzle of your life in a big way. It could be painful. It could hurt you. It could even hurt other people. You may have to trust God about that. You may have to say, God, I'm going to do what you say, even though it's going to cause a lot of anguish. But I know that I can trust you and having you at the heart of my life is more important than anything. So just quickly, this third point. Jesus shows the liberating power of the king. And he's, he's doing that by healing people, by lifting up people, by setting them free from the oppression that has actually had control over their lives. It's, it's shown... Uh, in, I guess, particularly verses 23 to 25, it says this. He, he was going from synagogues proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. This is viral. This is, this is causing tremendous change to the lives of tens of thousands of people all over the place. Because the power of sickness, uh, the power of oppression on a spiritual level is being banished. Now, we, we might think, well, that's the kind of oppression that I, I don't really relate to. I don't feel particularly oppressed necessarily. Some of us maybe do, and, and we love praying for the sick. We love to see the power of, of this king liberating people from sickness in this church, which we pray for and see happen often. But 
some of you, in reality, may be more, more suffering from spiritual oppression than you're aware of. There are kinds of oppression that can be more subtle. The fact is that if you've given yourself in your heart to things that are evil, they do end up having power over you. Anyone who's stumbled into addiction, I shouldn't perhaps say stumble, people who've walked into addiction, or whatever kind of oppressive power, there are even occultic powers that, that may have started to have influence and authority over your life because you've basically yielded to them. You've, you've become fascinated with the, with the supernatural in a way that's become dark and obsessive and it's ended up having control over you. It's given you fear. It's robbed you of your peace. And There are other kinds of fears and battles that people face inwardly. Maybe the battle simply with guilt and shame. Some of you are under actual oppression from those things. Things that seem to weigh on you so heavily. Maybe even religion. In fact, religion can be one of the most oppressive things of all. Because we imagine in ourselves gods who, who simply come to bring burdens on our lives. Gods are very good at doing that. False gods will burden you, will pressure you, will weigh you down with a sense of obligation, a sense of failure, and a sense of performance that you cannot possibly achieve. And the terrible sense of lack and failure can oppress you and suck the life out of you. Jesus did not come to do that. Jesus came proclaiming, as he says in Luke chapter 4, liberty to the oppressed. If religion has oppressed you, Jesus has come to liberate you. To come to say, I, I will take the burden. I will take, I will take your failure. I will take it upon myself. I will do what you can't do. I will carry your burden of religion. I'll carry your burden of fear. I'll carry your burden of guilt and shame. I'll take it all upon myself, all the powers of evil, demonic influence in your life, I will carry them for myself. I will carry them even to the cross where I will deal with them forever as I die for you. This is what Jesus has come to do. He's come to bring liberating power. He is that good. He is that kind of king. And the power that you and I still, 20 centuries later, come under the, the dominion of he's come to set you free. And some of you need to know that freedom today, perhaps for the first time. Let me say one final thing. This is a chapter with two halves. We see this story of, of magnificent influence and reach for Jesus' message all over the towns and villages and area that's described here. It's a huge area, tens of thousands of people, maybe more. But it comes after the first half of the chapter where Jesus is lonely. Jesus is fasting. Jesus is going under terrible trial and temptation where it's difficult, where it's a strain. I want you to see the relationship between the two halves. The Christian life is also characterized by seasons. If you belong to Jesus, you'll go through similar stories to Jesus. You'll go through seasons where it's like Jesus is at work there are answers to prayer. There's transformation happening. People's lives are being impacted. You're having so many joyful stories to tell. It's good news. But there are also the seasons which are often before those times where it feels like you're on your own. No one understands where you're undergoing a trial and a temptation. Some of you need to understand the context of your trials. You're going through temptations and trials like the ones we talked about last Sunday. 
and they can feel so painful. But perhaps it will help you to understand that they're not just about you. Your trials and temptations, your seasons of trial and temptation are not just about you. What you're going through right now, if you continue faithfully through it, you will be opening your life and other lives up to seasons of change, progress, transformation. Persevere through it, not just for your own sake, but many other lives will be blessed, will be enriched through the spiritual blessing that comes as you persevere through seasons of trial. They are not the only seasons, but they, they are necessary for us to enjoy the seasons of harvest that God will bring about. Let that be a word to some here who feel lonely in the season of temptation they're undergoing. Let's pray. Father, I want to ask you that all these lessons of this kingdom that your son has brought to us will be learned and Lord, will be brought into the enrichment of our lives for your glory and for the sake of the progress of the kingdom in this city and beyond. In Jesus' name, amen.